All right, so we're finishing up our series through Romans 8 this morning. And um, I want to start, in a sense, kind of in a different place with some other thoughts, some other texts, but you'll see how I think it prepares us to receive what God has to say for us or say to us this morning in Romans 8 at the end of this chapter. So Jesus told his disciples in John 16, before he went to the cross, right before he went to the cross, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. The Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans, was very familiar with the trouble in this world. In his own experience, okay, so 2 Corinthians 7, 5, he wrote, for even when we went into Macedonia, our body, our, <laughs> I just tried to mix bodies in Macedonia. All right, so even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fears within. Probably resonate with that. A lot of us can resonate with that phrase, fighting without and fears within. There's a reason why Jesus taught us to love our enemies as his followers, because we're going to have them. The Psalms are filled with the sufferings and trials of human threats and attacks from enemies. Some because we're Christians, some just because we're humans and we live in this fallen, broken world and there's just conflict everywhere. Paul was also very familiar with the struggles within. So he talked about fears within in that last passage. But in Galatians 5.17, he writes, For the desires of the flesh are sinful nature, are against the spirit. Okay, for in a Christian, our sin still remains. You know, we still want the wrong things oftentimes, but the spirit dwells within us, and so there's an internal conflict. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. In Romans 7, chapter before the one we've been studying, he articulates this struggle in a way that resonates deeply, I think, with a lot of us. 7.15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do, verse 19, the good that I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Down in verse 22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Not only is there a war within, an enemy within, in this conflict, flesh and spirit, there's enemies and pressures and threats without in the fallen world around us, Paul also adds, and he warns us clearly, that we've got to stand against the schemes of the devil. We have an enemy of our souls. Ephesians 6.12, another letter that Paul wrote. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan's like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and he have, has his fallen angelic minions that do his bidding. So this world is like a war zone. It's also like a slaughterhouse. 
It's a haunted house. This world's like a haunted house in a lot of ways. It can also be like a psych ward. I mean, we've all got a little crazy in us. I, I'm not saying that joking. I mean, we could laugh. We all have a little crazy. And we can struggle with a lot of crazy. So anybody resonating that these are the realities for us? Well, now comes the most important part of the sermon. We're going to read again, because we need this again and again and again and again. We're going to read Romans 8, 28 to 39. Again, we read it appropriately a few minutes ago. But I want to say this again. Slow down here with me. Engage with what God is saying to you individually, personally, specifically. So to us, to you and me, who live in the midst of this fallen world, battling the world, the flesh, and the devil, personalize this message. It's intended to be spoken, not just kind of generally, but to us as God's people. Don't hold it out at arm's length. It's familiar, and it's easy to just you know, have it go in one ear and out the other because we're familiar with it. But listen, if you are in Christ this morning, if you have repented of your sins, turned away from that old way of life, I'm going to be in charge, I want my will to be done, we made a mess of our lives, right? So you turn from your sin, you trust in Jesus, all we bring is the empty hands of faith, all we bring is actually full hands full of sin that Jesus needs to deal with because we can't atone for our own sins. We give him that, he gives us forgiveness and pardon and righteousness and his spirit. So if you're in Christ, if you are trusting in him as your savior, then these words, all of these promises, they're all yours, it's all yours. It's almost too good to be true. So allow yourself to receive it, like right now. In fact, you may want to just throw up a quick prayer that you will humbly receive it with an open mind and an open heart right now. It's always a good way to read the Bible, prayerfully. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain, because we're spring-loaded, you know? We'd rather read this or watch this than open the word. Open my eyes to see wonderful things. I'm, I'm so, it's so easy for me to be blind to glory. So do it, Lord. Okay? Amen? Anybody? Do it, Lord. All right. So let's read it together here, starting in verse 28. Personalize this. I'm going to read. You can listen, but read, read along. Follow along prayerfully here. And we know. Lord, help us know. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We know this. We know this because those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
nobody falls through the cracks. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Shall these things separate us? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is really good news. So we could break this text, 31 to 39 is our focus this morning, into two parts, most simply. You could probably break it down other ways. The first part in verses 31 to 34 is focused on the judicial effects, we could say. The implications of the gospel in a, in a judicial way. We can't be condemned. God is for us. Even Jesus is interceding for us, in a sense, it has some judicial connotations. So there's irreversible acquittal in those first few verses, 31 to 34. The latter half, 35 to 39, is focused on the relational effects and implications of the gospel. Inseparable love. Irreversible acquittal, inseparable love. Nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. So listen. This is such weighty stuff. <laughs> whatever happened in the news this week, or last week, or last month, or last year, or whatever, whatever happened in the seats of power, whatever viral sensation set the interwebs on fire this week, or this year, or this decade, whatever financial booms or busts thrilled or shook investors this year, or decade, or century, whatever inventions wowed us or blessed us or cursed us. It is all husks and ashes that just blow away with a mere breath compared to the weight and the substance and the glory and the gravity of Romans 8, 29 to 39. So the realities of this passage worked out, listen, in very ordinary ways. Our little ordinary lives with your very ordinary, say, hospitality and intentional and weak and halting efforts to love your neighbor as yourself and share the gospel of Jesus with your friend or your family member or your neighbor or your coworker. All of that, like the truths of this passage and us trying to work it out in real life, 
is more eternally weighty than a record number of Olympic gold medals. It's more weighty than Elon Musk's inventions. Who cares what he's saying on Twitter? It's more weighty than Jeff Bezos's billions. And it's more weighty than the YouTuber has billions of views or subscribers or whatever. It's all just fleeting and weightless compared to the weight of glory that is ours and awaits us and is being produced in us by grace through faith in Jesus one ordinary day at a time as Romans 8 is getting lived out in our lives by the power of the Spirit. All right, so five questions here this morning. What then shall shall we say to these things? A little bit of review, context. Who can be against us? How will he not also give him, with him, graciously give us all things? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We're going to look at those five questions each in turn as we walk through the passage, all right? So first question, what then shall we say to these things? So 831 is like a hinge. I mentioned that last week. It looks back and it moves us forward. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us? So last week we looked at the unbreakable golden chain as it's referred to. Maybe, you know, we should call it the titanium alloy chain um, of 28 to 30. There's no weak link in that chain. Nobody falls through the cracks. So that's certainly some of the these things that Paul has in view, right? What then shall we say to these things, the stuff that he just mentioned? But it's likely that Paul has an even bigger scope to pull in when he says these things, okay? If you look at the themes in Romans 8, you see similar themes in Romans chapter 5 at the beginning of Romans chapter 5, 1 to 11. So it's likely that he's saying all of these things, all these great, awesome gospel truths. In fact, you could even say all the way back to 116 because <laughs> there's just gospel truth all the way through. So much grace, so much glory, so much of the goodness of God toward us guilty sinners. And so what then should we say to all this stuff, all these things? Paul's bringing, in a sense, like an early climax in the book of Romans here in chapter 8. There's another climax in chapter 11 at the end. But this is like the heaviest duty hinge in the universe. Romans 8.31. If we had this like titanium alloy chain, we can go with the industrial metaphor and say that 8.31 is like the heaviest duty hinge in the universe. Holding all these things and then unpacking what it means in verses 32 to 39. So in a sense, it draws a bottom line to what's come before. What shall we say to these things, the stuff that we've been considering? And then that bottom line just begs to be unpacked and expounded further. And that's what 32 to 39 does. All right? So what then shall we say to these things? God is on our side. God is on your side. If you're in Christ, God is on your side. God is on your side. Like, let that sink in. Not on the Republican side. The devil is clearly bipartisan, okay? Not on the American side. 
Not on the vaxxer side or the anti-vaxxer side. Not on the side with this or that schooling preference or sports team allegiance or whatever. On and on and on. All the ways in which we... No. God is on your side if you are in Christ. Period. Full stop. So if you are in Christ, then God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? So, what shall we say to these things? All the grace that's gone before. What does it all mean? How should we respond? What are the implications of all of this? Second question. Who can be against us? Again, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So this is a different question than who is against us. Right? Because lots of things and people can be against us. Of course, there's going to be people who are opposed to the people of God, and oftentimes precisely because we are the people of God. We're going to be a countercultural people. We're not always going to be a popular people, okay? But we're going to stand with Jesus no matter what it costs. The point is who can successfully be against us? In the long run, in the scope of eternity, if God is on our side, who can ultimately be against us, defeat us? If God is on our side, and he's actually done it, right? He's chosen to make us his own. He wasn't coerced into siding with us. He knew what he was getting himself into. He is for us in eternity past and through eternity future, which is what the golden chain says, right? In 28 to 30. If God is for me, who can be against me? I like what Ray Ortland said. I've quoted from this book a few times. I'm going to quote from it a couple times this morning as well. Supernatural living for natural people. And if God is for you, then God would have to be defeated for you to be defeated. Let that sink in. If God is for you, God would have to be defeated for you to be defeated. So on this massive hinge, 831, we now move from bottom lining what's come before to unpacking what it means for God to be for us. Nothing, no one ultimately can successfully be against us. So it's very fitting that the first thing Paul says, first thing that he says to unpack what it means for God to be for us and the fact that no one can ultimately be against us is the greatest demonstration of God being for us. In fact, it's what had to happen in order for God to be for us without violating his righteousness. So in a sense, verse 32 is God being for us so that God can be for us. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Do you see what's in verse 32? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the giving of his son was God being for us so that God could be for us. So, third question, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The Father is, look at how God describes himself here through the pen of the Apostle Paul. The Father is he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God so loved 
the world. That he gave his only son. This is who he is. So there's a philosopher, theologian guy. He's actually a professor emeritus at this point at Yale. He's almost 90. Nicholas Wolterstorff. Um, and in 1987, he wrote a book called Lament. We probably wrote it before that, but it was published in 1987. Um, his book was called Lament for a Son. And in it, he writes of the tragic death of his son in a climbing accident. And here's what he writes in the preface. If someone asks, who are you? Tell me about yourself. I say, not immediately, but shortly, I am one who lost a son. That loss determines my identity. Not all my identity, but much of it. It belongs within my story. If you meet God the Father, you very quickly find out that He is the one who gave His Son. God chose for this to be at the heart of who He is. What, what's God like? What's the Father like? Well, He's the one who gave His Son. which speaks of his infinite love for his son and for us to be willing to give us his son. Octavius Winslow said, who killed Jesus? Who killed him? It wasn't Judas out of greed. It wasn't the Jews out of envy. It was his father out of love. The Father killed him. It was the Father who put him to death. So know that he has perfect, infinite love for the Son. So this is not something that he does easily. It wasn't like easy for the Father, tough on the Son. No. This is, he couldn't give anything more or harder or better. And so, infinite love for his son. The love for us that he's willing to give us his son. And then it also speaks of the love of the son. <laughs> right? Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? What better demonstration of God being for us is God the son taking on flesh and blood and hanging on a cross and bearing the wrath, the judgment, the condemnation that we deserve. That is the ultimate expression of God for us. God being for us. The Son became one of us to represent us, to be our substitute, to deal with his righteous opposition to sin. He can't just sweep it under the rug of the universe. It's got to be dealt with justly. How can he both be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus? Only if Jesus dies in our place. And that's what he did to save us, to make us his own. So the son became one of us, the ultimate demonstration of God being for us fallen sinners so that now and forevermore he could be for us 
without compromising his justice. And Romans makes this really clear in chapters 3 and 4. So if he did the hardest thing, this is the point, he gave his son, how will he not also do all the lesser things? He's not going to give up now. So it's the argument from the greater to the lesser. It's an a fortiori argument if you like Latin and, you know, logic things. There's other examples of this in the Bible. You know, Matthew 6, when Jesus is saying, hey, if God clothes the grass of the field, if he feeds the birds, is he going to take care of you? Of course he is. How, of how much more greater value are you than the birds? Okay, God loves the birds. Birds are great, but people made in his image, even more so. So if your father was wildly rich, and you needed extensive, serious, life-saving surgery that cost millions, what do you think he would do if, while you're recovering, you asked for a Tylenol? Is he going to start griping about how much a bottle of pain relievers cost? We actually can do that. Heavy cost, and then we start like nickel and diamond because it's just like, okay, I've kind of hit my threshold here because we feel the pinch. Well, guess what? God never, never feels the pinch. So he's not a great big one of us. Like, don't, don't project that onto his character. If he gave his son, how will he not also, together with him, graciously give us everything that we need, all things? Now, we need to figure out what this all things refers to, right? Because it's not everything that we ask for. Okay, God, I really want, um, you know, a lake house and a boat. In the context of Romans 8, it seems that the all things here refers to the all things necessary to conform us to Christ. Because that's our destination, right? Right? and to persevere to the end and be glorified so that we will have all things. Because we are heirs with Christ, right? Everything is ours. Ultimately, the meek shall inherit the earth, right? Like, if we are God's sons and daughters, if we're, then we're heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Everything ultimately belongs to us. Paul says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 3. You know, they're kind of like siding with different teachers. Well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, you know, and like everybody's divided. And Paul's like, enough with the focus on these human leaders. Like, so what? Let no one boast in men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death. Death is yours. What does that mean? Or the present or the future. The present is yours. The future are yours. All are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So just one example of what he's trying to get at here is death is yours. It's your servant if you're in Christ. It's an enemy. It's an intruder. We hate death. It's a result of sin and the fallenness of this world. But in Christ, everything's working together for good. And your death is not just an enemy. It's also a servant. Because when you die, if you're in Christ guess what you get? More Christ. You're safe and secure forever. So, even evil, suffering, turn to good, it serves God's ultimate purposes 
your good and conformity to Christ, your ultimate good, conformity to Christ. So if God is for us, nothing and no one can ultimately be against us. Fourth question, who is to condemn? Verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We heard, you know, those whom he foreknew, he chose in the golden chain. It is God who justifies, right? Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. So who shall bring any charge against God's chosen ones, his beloved chosen ones? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. So if God has justified you in the court of heaven, who can bring any charge that will overturn that verdict? Nobody. Who can condemn? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined and called and justified and glorified. Nobody falls through the cracks. So not only were all who are in Christ Jesus justified in the past, when you become a Christian, you trust in Jesus. And so before God, we're guilty, right? We deserve condemnation. The gavel falls. Imagine facing your judge at the end of your life and You can't hide anything. He's seen everything. He's heard everything you've ever said, thought, done. Can't hide any of it. How are you going to fare in that courtroom? We're all guilty. We're all in trouble. Condemnation. But if Jesus paid for all that, and his blood covers your sin, in the court of heaven, the gavel falls. Jesus was condemned so that you can be justified forevermore. You are accepted, you are pardoned, you are righteous, you are at peace and reconciled to God, period, forevermore. So, not only were we justified in the past, in that courtroom, when we believed, but also, look at the rest of verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So not just justification in the past, but intercession in the present. If justification wasn't enough, there's more, you see? So on a daily basis, right, our conscience can accuse us, rightly or wrongly. The devil accuses us. His accusations aim at condemnation. How can God love you if you keep screwing up like that? Look at you, and you call yourself a Christian. How can God love you if you're suffering like this? Some father he is. So the devil loves to accuse. He's like a prosecuting attorney. But guess what? There's somebody else in the courtroom. Jesus is our defense attorney. Jesus is our defense attorney. His blood pleads. Present tense for us. And will the Father listen to the Son? That's kind of like a no-brainer. Will his intercession be effective? So we've gone from guilty under condemnation, you know, none is righteous, no, not one. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 10 and 23. Romans 5, but God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when Satan accuses, 
when we start to entertain condemning thoughts, when other people level condemning thoughts or condemning accusations at us, we can defy them. I mean, if they're right, we need to own it, repent, apologize, like make it right, right? But certainly Satan is, you know, just wanting to bury us and, you know, drive our head in the, into the dirt. So we can defy those accusations. We don't say, yeah, I screwed up, but wait till you see how I do this week. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to pray more consistently. So there, stick it to you, Satan. Or, yeah, but, you know, 30 years ago, back in the day, I walked the aisle, signed the card, prayed the prayer. Is that what we appeal to? Or we can say, well, yeah, you know, accusations, conscience, whatever. I've also done this and that, and I donated to such and such a ministry, and I served in such and such a ministry, and, you know, I'm trying to be... No. My Redeemer died for my sins in my place, and His blood covered my sins, and His blood continues to plead for me. There is therefore now no condemnation. I've been justified by grace through faith in Jesus. No one can overturn this case. There is no appeal to a higher court. If God justifies, who is to condemn? Who can condemn? Ultimately, no one. No one. No one. Fifth question. Who shall separate us from a love of Christ? Verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Okay, can anyone, can anything tear us away from the sovereign grip of our Savior, Jesus? Paul throws out some options, some potentials. And don't just run through this like, oh yeah, 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 tribulation. Think about, imagine yourself in these situations. We'll ponder just a couple of them. Shall tribulation, that's pretty like a junk drawer term, covers a lot. Distress, persecution, famine. Imagine yourself in famine. Nakedness, danger, sword. So let's just take famine and nakedness, okay? Doesn't it say in Matthew 6 that we don't have to worry about our life, what we're going to eat, and what we're going to wear? So seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added as well. And then you're in a famine, and you're starving to death, and your kids are starving to death. Do you think you might start to wonder if God still loves you? So these are serious. This is not like cheap, kind of like throwaway situations. This is like the hardest stuff. Is this stuff true? Like it's stress testing these promises. Is this stuff real? Can, it, can God's promises and grace take it? Yes, because the good, the promise is all things work together for good. 
He's going to give us all things. If he gave us the hardest thing, if he gave us the greatest thing, his son, will he not also together with him graciously give us everything that we need to make it to the end in faith? To persevere and then be glorified. To be conformed to Christ. Yes. And so that path can be found. You can be faithful and more than a conqueror through starving to death. And God will prove to you the truth that man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, shall these things separate us? No. One thing that sometimes there are people who, you know, try to challenge some of the thoughts about the the sovereignty of God, the, the certainty, the we can't be torn away, kind of eternal security type stuff in Romans 8. Say, well, it doesn't say anything about the human will. It doesn't say that we can't walk away. We can't separate ourselves from the love of Christ. Well, that's a fair question, right? Because you're right, it doesn't matter. But wait, do you think that the issue is just the sword? That it's just having no food? in some abstract sort of way. No, the whole point is, in what kind of context would you be tempted to walk away, to cave, to compromise, in the face of the sword, right? So you see, that's actually the issue. The real issue is, will he keep me in the face of that? And the answer is, yes! What can separate us? This, this, this. No. That's the answer. If you are his, if you are in Christ, the answer is no, they won't separate you. He will keep you. Verse 36. Sometimes we just kind of like, I'm not sure why that's in there, and we just move on to verse 37. But hold on. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's quoting Psalm 44, 22. You can look up the whole of Psalm 44 later. But here's the thing. In Old Testament, oftentimes the judgment of God, right, fell on his people because of their obstinate rebellion. But here in Psalm 44, they are suffering deeply. And listen to verses 17 and 18. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. Our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. In other words, Suffering isn't always a result of sin. Job knew that. So his friends were wrong. Job was righteous and a sufferer. Righteous doesn't mean sinlessly perfect. It means he was like the real deal. He's really trusting God. So Job really trusted God, and he suffered terribly. And that doesn't mean that God abandoned him. It doesn't mean that we're severed from the love of God. So the world is a massive slaughterhouse, right? For your sake, for the sake of your name, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This world is a massive slaughterhouse, and in some cases, brothers and sisters around the world, whether it's Afghanistan or North Korea or whatever, you lose your life for converting to Christianity or standing up for Christ. But also, there can be little deaths Gossip, slander, sarcasm, critical spirits, character assassinations. You know, the evil one is a murderer and he'll use every tool he can. So there is 
suffering that's a result of our sin, yes, but there is righteous suffering that is orchestrated to God's glory and our ultimate good. And we need to know ahead of time that that doesn't separate us from a love of God. So Paul replies to his previous question in verse 35, who shall separate us, shall tribulation, etc., etc. Verse 37, no, no. In all these things, in all the hard things that can be leveled at you in this life, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, ignorance, danger, sword, in all these things, we are actually more than conquerors through him who loved us. So all these things, can they separate us? No. Can we conquer them, overcome them by God's grace and his spirit's power? Yes, but the point is even greater than that. It's not that we just endure them and glad that's over, I made it. They are actually intended to do us good. So not only can you conquer them, you can be more than a conqueror because that bad thing is turned to your good. And it actually, in the long run, does you good. That which was aimed at destroying you or tearing you down actually built you up. So John Chrysostom, he lived in the 300s. He was an early church father. He, he wrote this. Some of those early Christians knew what it was like to suffer tribulation and danger and sword. Yet those that be against us, so far as, I'm sorry, so far are they from thwarting us at all, that even without their will, they become to us the causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings in that God's wisdom turns their plots to our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us. There's also a lady named Martha Nicholson, and she wrote a poem called The Thorn. I was just going to read the last two lines, and then I read the whole poem, and I'm going to read the whole poem. We only have the last two lines up here, but you'll see those in a minute. So she writes, I stood a mendicant, that's like a beggar, okay? I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. He never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. How many of us can testify to the fact that sometimes the hardest periods we've gone through have been the sweetest periods with our Savior? So God is not defeated by evil or sin or suffering or struggle. He is sovereign over it all. He can and does and will use it all to make you and me more than conquerors. We can, we will conquer, but not merely conquer, 
our tribulations and sufferings are working together. God is working them together for our good. He's turning evil and suffering and trials for our good. The very thing that Satan is using to try to tear us down, he actually turns it on him and builds us up. So death is an enemy. It's turned to a servant. Death can't separate you from the love of Christ, right? Actually, it unites you with him. Ha! So Paul writes in conclusion, I am sure he's persuaded and may the Lord persuade us and make us sure that neither death nor life. He's just going to cover all the bases here. Because life can be pretty hard, right? Like, for some people, death seems like relief. To some, death seems like, ah, and you don't even want to face it. Well, it doesn't matter. Whichever one's harder for you, you can be persuaded that neither can separate you, and God will give you grace so that you can be more than a conqueror through it all. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, no fallen angels or powers, no things present nor things to come, How about that? Things present. The stuff that's going on in our lives right now that just drives us nuts and weighs us down and we feel like we're going to crack. Nothing present can separate you from the love of Christ. And I'm afraid of what's around the corner. What if anxiety, fear, nothing around the corner can separate you from the love of God in Christ? Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I love this. It's not, I didn't see it. Somebody, a couple people pointed it out. Romans 8 begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Don't you love to live in between those bookends? So verses 35 to 37, these things can't defeat, just look at the text here, okay? Look at Verse 35, list of stuff. And then in 37, it says, no, in all these things, all that bad stuff, it can't defeat the these things in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? The verse 31 things trump the verse 37 things. You see that? Because God's working all the things for our good. And I think you're actually supposed to see that, like in the way that Paul wrote it. So, on a daily basis for you and me, especially when we suffer and struggle, which things are going to trump which things? You tracking with me? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, that stuff gets real big and right up in our face and we lose sight of what shall we say in response to these things? But if we get our eyes on the these things of verse 31, then all the these things of verse 37 are going to shrink down to size and we're going to say, no. In all these things, I can be more than a conqueror because look at all these other things that are so much greater that are mine in Christ. So listen, brothers and sisters, Romans 8 is awesome. Don't stop meditating on it. Do you believe that God wants you to be certain and sure of his love, secure in his love for you. 
So I might step on our toes a little bit here, okay, to stop or to end. But I think this is good for us, and I think it also can help put a little bit of, a little bit of uh, steel in our spine on a daily basis because of how we are oftentimes inclined. I know I can be. God wants us to stop feeling sorry for ourselves and start feeling loved. We are ultimately not victims, but victors. Doesn't mean there isn't real victimhood, okay? I'm not minimizing any of that. Bad stuff can happen to you. But ultimately, we, Christians in Christ, are not victims. We are victors. So I'm going to quote Ray Ortland to close, and then we're going to sing, Is He Worthy? which is an awesome conclusion to this awesome chapter. So if the team wants to come on up, I'm going to read this, and then we'll sing, and then we'll have some time of community discussion as we close things out here. So Ray Orland writes, The love of God is the key to the narrative of our lives. Your life is a love story. So stop thinking of yourself as a victim. You are more than a victor. He means that in the sense of more than a conqueror, right? You're not just a victor. You're not just a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror. You're more than a victor. Your real life just happens to be the vehicle God is using to bring you to splendor. Your sufferings do not define you. The love of God defines you. And your persevering confidence in this love is the overwhelming victory of Romans 8.37. Maybe you've not been feeling loved by God, but God never promised that nothing would ever separate us from our earthly comforts. God never promised that life would be fair. Let's look for God's love where he himself has promised it. Satan pours all hell out on our heads, and we do not respond bitterly, I'll never trust God again. What a fool I was to open my heart to him. I'm making my own way from now on. No, we waver, we weep, we agonize, but we get back up again and say, I will trust God. He must have a good reason for this. I will go on with God. Why do we do this? Why don't we give up on God? Because God loves us. His love created our faith. His love undergirds our faith. His love is deepening our faith. And he is going to bring us by our faith through all our afflictions, more like Christ and more fit to be with Christ. God sticks up for us. God provides for us. God justifies us. God loves us. God's love is loyal, generous, just, and eternal. God fights for us. God gives to us. God defends us. God's care God cares for us no matter what happens. God is for us in friendship. God is over us in provision. God is around us in protection. God is with us in preservation. Therefore, we should never feel opposed by God. We should never feel deprived by God. We should never feel condemned by God. We should never feel abandoned by God. We may so believe the gospel that we live in the atmosphere of God's overcoming partnership, God's overcompensating generosity, God's overruling advocacy, and God's overwhelming love. Amen.